Our sermon passage today comes from the book of Exodus. We're continuing on in our sermon series in Exodus 3, verses 9 through 15. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them with you, or your um, Bible app, or it's printed for you in your bulletin if you need it. Exodus 3, verses 9 through 15. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and he took a hold of the snake and he turned it back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to them. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside of your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored on the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech. And tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight? Who makes them blind? Is it not I? Said the Lord. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send somebody else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and he'll be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak, and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth, and as if you were a God to him. But take this staff in your hand, so you can perform the signs with it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we get a glimpse of who you are and what you're about, and so a glimpse of who we are in you. Open the eyes of our heart this morning to see the, the matchless love of Jesus and speak to us through this passage by your Spirit to change us to be more like Him. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is God's will for my life? I remember growing up, especially in my teenage years, somewhat obsessed with this question. I grew up in church and probably were too. What's God's will for my life? It's usually like, where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to marry? What am I going to do with my life? What job should I take? We are obsessed with God's will for our life. And that's not a bad question. It's actually a really good question. And, you know, it's a good thing to want to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's a good thing to think about uh, what He wants us to do with the time and the resources and the life that we have. But... I think there's another thing, at least for me, that was going on under the surface of asking that question. It was this. It was a hope that if I can get clear direction about what God wants me to do and then do that, that life won't be able. His steps for me to take spelled out so I can take that path without having to think about it. 
Because if I could do that, I'd never struggle to lead me to wealth and happiness, right? I could have never thought asking the question, what is God's will for my life, would be answered that maybe the path He wants me to take is a difficult one. That God's will for, his, for my life, His best for me, might actually be a pathway into suffering. Even if not my own, walking alongside and with others and their suffering. That in a sense, God's will for my life might sometimes mean taking pathways I don't want to take. It might mean sadness and grief. That following God as our shepherd, as we looked at in uh, Psalm 23, which we read at the beginning, is our call to worship. That following God as my shepherd might look like walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't end there, of course. God as our shepherd means goodness and mercy following after me all the days of my life. God as my shepherd means a place with us, with Him forever, for us, with Him forever. But it might mean... And here and now, some forks in the road that we don't want to take. Now, I say all that because we are in Exodus 4. In the, in the previous chapter, in Exodus 3, God has appeared to Moses. And he has told Moses, as clearly as anyone has ever been told in their entire life, what God's will for Moses' life is. He's told Moses, I am sending you to Egypt, where you don't want to go. <laughs> where you fled. I'm sending you to Egypt, and I'm going to use you to bring my people out of bondage and bring them to a place where they can thrive and flourish. And God says, even says, I'll go with you. I will be with you. So Moses has heard as clearly as anyone ever has what God's will for his life is, except for here's the issue. It's not what Moses seems to want at all. And so in this passage, Moses has a series of questions, a series of objections He's trying to wiggle out from this uh, clear answer to a question I think we've all asked. What is God's will for my life? Moses has heard it, and he's wanting to return the gift. I don't want this. God's showing up here is an incredible grace, but it's absolutely an interruption to everything that Moses knows. It's not what he wants to hear. That's what we see in our first verse. Look at, look at, look at verse 1. As I said, God has just told Moses what he's sending him to do. And he's even told him, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to do it. Look what Moses says. What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, the Lord didn't appear to you? God had already told him his name in chapter 3. You may remember that. God said, my name is Yahweh. Call on me. It was an invitation to intimacy. God is self-sufficient and defined by no one. And in His holy freedom, He's coming to redeem His people. And Moses is convinced that that's not enough. He needs more words. Or to put it another way, he needs more information. He's gotten God's will for his life. But he's saying, well, I really don't have enough. I need more. If I'm going to act on this God, even though you've shown me very clearly what I'm supposed to do, I need more. And so God gives Moses three signs. And they're very odd signs. To us, um, they're catered to an Egyptian world. Now we'll see later. The Egyptians are great at spectacle. They're great at show. Um, they're great at uh, what they call magic. It's very visual, ooh, very impressive stuff. They're good at production. So Moses wants a sign that will be able to move the eyes of the people from the flash and and the the, the circus of Egypt to put them on him. 
But before he gives them those signs, notice what the first thing God says to this, uh, this objection that Moses needs more. Look at verse 2. God says, what's in your hand? What is that in your hand? First thing God does is, pay, is call attention to the shepherd's staff in Moses' hand. Now this isn't like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, this isn't like a wand with a special dragon's hair inside and special. This is a stick. This is a shepherd's staff. It's the everyday tool. It's like a carpenter being said, look at the hammer in your hand. This is the most ordinary thing that Moses had. God is going to work through this ordinary thing to do His extraordinary work of salvation. Now, He gives them these signs. There's three of them. A snake, skin, and blood. And that sounds like a horror movie, right? A snake, a skin, and blood. The first sign is a snake. You see it in verses 1 through 5. And think about this. God could have picked any animal in the entire animal kingdom and told Moses, throw your stick down and turn it into hippopotamus. That would have been impressive, right? I mean, I think. But it specifically turns into a serpent, a snake. Why? Well, one of the reasons is this. The serpent in the ancient world was the symbol of Pharaoh. If you ever look at a picture of Pharaoh, you see that big headdress they have? It's meant to look like a cobra's hood. The asp, the cobra, the snake was the symbol of the, the royal house of Egypt. Like the eagle is the symbol of, uh, of America. That's what it was. And so God telling Moses to throw this stick on the ground and it turning into a serpent, it's God using this particular symbol almost like a reversal. The point he's making is that you are to have no terror of this serpent. You're to have no terror of Pharaoh. When God furthers this, look at verse 4, when he tells them to do, if you have any experience with snakes, you don't grab them by the tail. God specifically says, don't grab it by the head. I mean, if you've ever had to catch a snake, you grab it by the head, so it can't like swing around and bite you. God specifically says, Moses, reach out your hand and grab it by the tail. That's begging to be bitten. It seems foolish. But what God is doing, he's showing Moses that he must trust God in this foolish act of confronting Pharaoh. And then in the midst of it all, God will be with him. It's a dramatic sign. What about the second sign? It's in verses 6 and 7. This is Moses' skin. Moses would have had brown skin, and dark, like a dark brown or at, at lightest an olive-colored skin. And he puts his hand in his cloak and he turns white. This would have been a terrifying moment for a lot of reasons. Now in that world, like ours, skin diseases were especially scary. Um, skin diseases were incredibly contagious and difficult to treat, hard to heal. Um, and those who had skin diseases, particularly things like leprosy, they would be separated off from the rest of their community, and they would be seen as unclean. Um, in fact, if you had leprosy ongoing and you had to like walk into town, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean, to announce you were coming so people could scatter and get away so they didn't catch what you had. The second sign seems to be pointing to this, that God's intention is to cleanse that which will be seen as unclean. And that is in His power to do it. Now the third sign is a little bit different. He tells Moses what to take water from the Nile River, which at this time Moses was mild, the other side of the world in his own mind from the Nile. It's not, this isn't a sign that Moses could do right there. 
Moses had thrown the, the stick on the ground and turned into a snake. Moses had stuck his hand into his cloak and turned into a leprous skin. He couldn't do this sign here. It was one that he could only perform in Egypt. He's told about it, but if he wants to see it, he's got to go to Egypt. In this sign, God takes the water of the Nile, not just any water, the water of the Nile, which was the very center of Egyptian life and culture, and he turns it into blood, symbol of life and death. And this would have been seen as a sign of judgment against the oppressive and wicked kingdom of Egypt. It was built on the back of the Nile. God, uh, and this also foretells one of the later plagues that God performs in Egypt, grinds their entire economy and world to a halt to set his people free. So those are the signs. But of course the issue isn't that Moses wants to go and just needs more resources, even though that's what he said. What if they don't believe? What if they say the Lord doesn't appear to you? And so Moses changes tactics. Look at verse 10. Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. Moses has received God's will for his life, right? And what does he say? I can't do it. I can't do it. Moses' eyes turn back on himself. He says here that he's, quote, not a man of words, that he's slow of mouth and tongue. And that's either Moses has a stuttering, like, speech impediment, or Moses is fearful that he's been away from Egypt for 40 years, and he can't speak the language like he used to. He won't be able to walk into Pharaoh's court and communicate. He'll speak with an accent, and everyone will laugh at him. It's one or the other. Either way, Moses is saying clearly here, I know that you've told me what you're doing. I know that you've shown me your will, and you said you're going to be with me, but I can't do it. My weaknesses outweigh your strength. My weakness is outweigh your strength. Is Moses, Moses saying that God can't help? Moses is just too weak. And that's why God responds the way he does in verses 11 and 12. God's the creator of mouths, ears, and eyes. And he says, now go, I will help you speak and teach you what to say. Now, a literal translation of this from the Hebrew is this. I will be with your mouth. I will be with your mouth. My point here is that God doesn't answer Moses' worries about his speech impediment by snapping his finger and making Moses the most eloquent speaker in history. God tells him that he doesn't want the best speaker in history. Moses, God does not want the most eloquent. God wants Moses. And God will be with him even in his stamina. God will be with him as he trips over his words. God will be with him. And so it seems Moses is out of, out of excuses. He said, I need more. God gives him signs. He says he can't do it. And God assures him that that's no problem at all. He knows Moses can't do it. And that's okay. God isn't tossing Moses into the war to be cannon fodder. He'll be with him. And so Moses, I think, finally says what he's been wanting to say all along in verse 13. Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Please send someone else. Moses finally says, I don't want to go. He's out of excuses. Now there's something missed here. When Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, it's actually him putting distance between himself and God. Here's what I mean. In chapter 3, God had given him the name Yahweh. And you may remember I said it was like God saying, 
uh, here's what she, here's what my friends call me. It was an invitation to intimacy and connection. It was an invitation for Moses to call on the Lord by this uh, intimate, personal name. But when Moses says, pardon your servant, Lord, here, he uses the generic title for servant. He's received this invitation to call upon the Lord in intimacy, to be known by Him and receive His grace. And he says, it's like he's saying, call me Tim, let's be friends. And he's saying, uh, no, sir, please go away. <laughs> That's essentially what this is. No, thanks, sir, I'm good. And this, you may notice, in all of this passage, is what finally angers God. Not that Moses felt like he needed more information. Moses said, what if they don't believe me? And God gives him signs. I think it points to the fact that God understands and is not threatened by our doubts. God can handle our doubts. They're okay. He'll dwell with us in them. He'll give us assurances of His love. That didn't make him angry. It didn't make him angry when Moses said he felt inadequate. God responds with what? Assurances about His presence with Moses. I think that points to the fact that God doesn't hold us in disdain for our weakness when we feel weak. God doesn't say, again, God understands our weaknesses. He doesn't want us to disdain ourselves because He doesn't disdain us. Hear me clearly there. Uh, sometimes we can feel like our limitedness, our weaknesses, our sins. God never asks us to uh, ask for forgiveness for our weaknesses. <laughs> Maybe we should ask for forgiveness for not realizing we are limited. What causes the Lord to grow angry here? It says that He burns with anger. And I'm going to stop referencing Hebrew in a second, but in, in Hebrew when it says the Lord burns with anger, it literally says that His nose got hot. It said it's an evocative description of, you ever get really angry and your nostrils flare and your face gets hot? That's what it describes. The Lord's not nose got hot. He burns with anger when Moses tries to turn away from the intimacy of his grace. And when he tells him, no, I don't want to go. Now, why would this bother God so much? Why would this cause him to burn? I don't think it's because uh, God's a cosmic baby who throws a tantrum when he doesn't get his way. I think he burns with anger for two reasons. And the first is this. God is intent to free his people. And God's will for Moses' life is not just about Moses. What God wants Moses to do here, what He's calling him to do and empowering him to do, is not just about Moses finding personal, individual fulfillment. He is calling Moses to a specific task in life, to be the human leader that brings a multitude of people out of bondage and slavery into freedom. So Moses closing his heart off here, trying to put a wall between him and God, it, it, it's almost like it's a roadblock. In God's plan. In other words, to say it again, God's will for Moses isn't just about Moses. And I think the second reason that God is angry is it because He knows that intimacy with Him is the way of life. We were created to live in the radiating love of God for us. 
This is what was made to be our spiritual nourishment and sustenance. This is what uh, it means to be human, made in the image of God, turned toward Him, reflecting Him like a mirror. That's what we're made for. And when we close ourselves off from that, what Moses does here, we're walking into a death trap and not even realizing it. The way of intimacy with God is the way of life. And Moses is turning his back on that. There's a flourishing and thriving in knowing God. And calling upon Him and knowing we are heard. And Moses here is saying, no thanks, I don't want your grace. It's too disruptive. I'll just go back to shepherd. But God has set His motion, or set His plan into motion to redeem His people and to join Moses to Himself by grace. And so, in one of the most remarkable things about this passage full of signs that are miraculous, it seems like God makes allowances here for Moses' rejection. He calls his brother, Aaron. It's a hard thing for me to get my mind around. Because Moses is very much trying to stiff-arm God here. <laughs> Please send somebody else. But he makes allowances for Moses' doubts and weaknesses, as we said here. It's almost like God's grace makes room for Moses' sin. Not to wink at sin. Not at all. But to carry it. To carry the weight of it and to carry his plan through. Now, I think in all of his excuses here that we've read, Moses hasn't learned something, and I think this is the gist of the passage. He has not learned something that he will learn later on, and it's this that salvation from front to back is from the Lord. Salvation all the way through is from the Lord. And I think that's the overarching point of this passage and why Moses wrote it down. Because to point out the reason we know about this conversation, that does not paint Moses in a really great lie. It's because Moses wrote it down. We know about this because Moses wrote it down. If I'm telling you stories about me and wanting you to instill confidence in, you, uh, in me as a leader, I'm not going to tell you about the time I told God no and tried to run away, right? <laughs> but I think Moses, in writing this down years later, was trying to make it abundantly clear. The rescue of the Israelites, it wasn't his idea. It wasn't that Moses went off into the desert for 40 years and gathered an army and gathered resources and prepared to go back and invade and free his people. Not at all. When God found Moses and called him to this task, Moses was far away from Egypt and content in the life that he had found, tending sheep. God broke in to save. He called Moses to be the leader of God's people. Yes, but the concern of salvation, the initiation, the achievement of it was always God's. God was going to work through weak and ordinary people who doubt and who even resist Him because He was intent to break the power of sin and to redeem to Himself people that would be reconciled to Him in grace. Salvation is from the Lord. It's not anybody's good idea. It's God's. Because if God doesn't do it, it won't happen. God doesn't move. We only stay bound. But the good news, friends, this morning for Moses, for the Israelites later on, for all the generations of God's people throughout time, and for us in this room, is that God has worked. He worked through Moses. Here he is. That was only a partial shadow that pointed to a greater reality of God working through Jesus, who in his life, death, and resurrection has made a way for us to come to him, who has overcome our doubts, 
who has overcome our resistance to have a grace that comes into this world that stretches beyond our knowledge as we read about from Ephesians 3 in our assurance of pardon. It's a love that stretches beyond the depth and the heights of the things that can be measured. It's a love that surpasses what we can say we know. It's beyond our categories to explain. It's a love from God for us. As I say often, Jesus came to remove every barrier that stood between us and being reconciled to Him. And He answered clearly for us as we're kind of wrapping up here the question that I opened in the beginning. What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Well, here it is. I'm not going to tell you where you should go to college or what job you should take or anything like that. That's normally what we mean. This is God's will for your life, friends. Number one, God's will for your life is for you to be loved by Him. That's His overarching will in all things for you. For you to know the love that surpasses knowledge. For the love of God to be the road you walk on and the air you breathe. To dwell with us until in the new heavens and new earth, every doubt about His profound love for us is removed. But even now, in this imperfect world, before the consummation of all His redemption has happened, as we still struggle with sin, to know, even in our doubts, even in our resistance, that we are loved by the Creator of the universe. That's God's will for you. No matter where you go to school, no matter who you marry or if you don't marry, no matter what happens in your life down the road, God's will is for you to be loved. And God's will also is for you to love. To love Him and to love neighbor. That's God's will for you. And yes, use wisdom, but don't ask God for signs to arrange in the clouds like, go take this job at this company. We're usually not going to get clear signs about, uh, you know, I used to joke around like, don't drive your car and pull up to the stoplight and say, should I turn left or right? God, give me a sign. But use your GPS. <laughs> Use your wisdom in situations. God gave us brains to use so we can use them. But no, and whatever those decisions and whatever forks come along in the road, God's will for you is to be loved and for you to love. And here's a second question because we're not just talking about ourselves individually. What's God's will for us together? Here's some thoughts. God's called us here to dumb, whether we think it's an accident or circumstance. Whether we think we've just lived here, you know, it's just happened to be the place we were born and grew up, or happened to be the place we landed. It's not. It's not an accident that we've been brought together as a community. We've been brought together to be witnesses of His love, to point to the sufficiency of His grace, not to hide our doubts and weaknesses. Think about the freedom Moses must have felt to include this conversation for the generations of God's people that were waiting. Moses is saying, I was an idiot. God was standing in front of me saying, I will go with you. And I said, no, don't, don't, please send somebody else. Moses felt that freedom because he knew his sufficiency was in God. The salvation was from the Lord. It wasn't for him. So he could say, yeah, I'm weak. I've done stupid stuff. I've resisted God. Grace, there was grace for me. There's grace for you too. God's final instruction in verse 17 is interesting. Because we pointed out, or I pointed out at the beginning of this passage, in verse 2, the first thing that God says to Moses is, what's in your hand? 
status. But the last thing God says to him in this section, verse 17, he points back to that status. This encounter's over. Moses has said his piece and God has said his. It seems like Moses is leaving. And God takes the initiative to call attention to Moses. Verse 17, take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Don't forget the staff, Moses. It's almost like Moses would have left it behind if God hadn't reminded him. After all, Moses is about to leave this world of shepherding behind forever. He doesn't go back to it. What we need is staff. But if we keep reading, we'll see that this staff, this ordinary stick, plays an incredible role. God will use this symbol of lowliness and unimportance to bring about the signs in Egypt that are coming, that marvel everyone and amaze everyone. And the most powerful nation in the world, ancient weapon of mass destruction, the greatest nation in the world had ever known at the time, is humbled by a simple shepherd's stick. Friends, our church is young and small. It's humble. We have incredibly talented people in this church. You all are amazing. But the mission for us to be witnesses to Jesus, to love this beautiful and broken community well, it's too big for us. If we did it on a spreadsheet, we, we would be at a, a net loss for what needs to happen. But what God's going to do is He's going to take our ordinary, He's going to take our ordinary and do what He always does. He's going to do what He did with Moses' shepherding staff. May we never get to the point where we don't see this. You know, I think it's easy for churches as they go along and they're beginning to fulfill budgets and they reach a point where uh, they feel like they don't need. Um, churches get to the point where they spend lots of time and money uh, chasing after excellence. And that's not bad, having like great singers or whatever. But, you know, you fill out your music team with good singers that have perfect pitch. You decorate the worship space, which is really pretty. You have marketing materials that look really impressive. The preacher gets on stage, he never has a hair out of place, he's got really fancy shoes, whatever. And he's really, you know, eloquent speaker. The budget's always met, kids always listen, they always mind their parents. All the marriages seem to be doing well in the church. But the reality is, what we bring to the table almost always looks like Moses here. We always just bring an ordinary staff. We might we bring our inability to speak uh, worthily and well of what we're pointing to. We bring our reluctance. We bring our doubt. And yes, we even bring our unbelief. So our takeaway this morning, y'all, isn't read this passage and don't be like Moses. That's not our primary takeaway. Our takeaway is this. If we were given ten opportunities to do the right thing and follow God's will for us to be loved and to love, we would make the decision wrong ten times. Ten out of ten times. But Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Jesus came to this world to do the will of the Father, and for Him that meant facing the cross for us, redeeming us from the power of sin. And our calling is to stop thinking about ourselves, uh, church, as if we didn't need the grace of God at every turn.
Stop thinking that uh, the goal is to live a life as if Jesus did not need to come. We are weak. We are resistant. Let's revel in the grace of God, not our limited Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you work as you do. That we who, if we were left to our own, love us, and that is your will for us, no matter uh, where the road takes us down the road, your will is to love us and for us to love you and love our neighbor. So enable us to trust and to depend upon you, to lean upon your grace for us, and teach us to be people who don't project an image, who don't pretend we've got it all together, to be people who don't try to cover over the things, uh, the scars or weaknesses of the Lord. Let us own those things and the reality of them because it is in our weakness where your strength is seen that your grace is made perfect and visible in our weakness. Do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.